You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Hello and a very warm welcome to today's Humanitarian Policy Group webinar on local humanitarian action. My name is Sorsha Callahan. I'm the director of the Humanitarian Policy Group at the Overseas Development Institute, and I'm really delighted to welcome so many of you to today's webinar. Um, as of yesterday, 400 people had signed up, so it's proving to be a really um, uh, interesting uh, event. And it's an especially important event for HPG as we launch a new report um, that brings together two years of research on local humanitarian action. And the report is called From the Ground Up. It's about time for local humanitarian action. And if you haven't seen it already, we'll post a link now in the chat function. And this report discusses how power imbalance and the devaluing of local capacity has meant that local humanitarian actors have been at the margins of the traditional humanitarian system. Too often, international actors, they've taken the visibility, the credit, and the lion's share of funding at the expense of their local partners. And many are now saying that COVID-19 is a wake-up call for the humanitarian system. We know that to respond to COVID-19, we need to act fast, we need to win the trust of communities, and we need to maintain delivery at a time when international travel restrictions and national travel restrictions means that many staff, and particularly international staff and aid actors have had to step back. So is now, finally, the time for local humanitarian action? So today we're going to draw on the report's findings to ask whether COVID-19 is in fact accelerating changes in the humanitarian system towards local action. Or beyond all this talk, are we seeing business as usual? And I'm delighted to welcome a great lineup of speakers to talk us through this. First, we have Larissa Fast, who's one of two co-authors of the From the Ground Up report. Um, she's a former senior research fellow with HPG and she's now a senior lecturer in humanitarian studies and a director of research at the Humanitarian and Conflict Response Institute at the University of Manchester in the UK. And Larissa is going to kickstart today's event with a presentation. Following Larissa's presentation, I'm really delighted to welcome Gloria Soma, who will provide reflections from South Sudan on the report's findings. Gloria is the director of the TT Foundation in Juba, um, which works to protect women and children's rights. And the TT Foundation have been active in the response to COVID-19, distributing masks and hygiene supplies. But Gloria herself is a leading voice on local issues in, in South Sudan and sits on the localization steering committee in Juba. Mini Anne Matuba Kalub is the program secretary of the National Council of Churches in the Philippines. And the National Council is a, is a leading humanitarian responder in the Philippines, particularly in response to major typhoons. 
In response to COVID-19, the National Council of Churches has been coordinating the response between faith-based organizations providing food, cash and hygiene kits. And she's going to focus on the question of how capacity of local actors and international actors are valued differently. And again, whether we're seeing anything new as a result of COVID. And lastly, I'm delighted to welcome a very familiar face to HPG. HPG um, Christina Bennett is uh, the joint author of this report and she's the former head of HPG. She's now the executive director of the START Network, uh, which is a network of over 40 national and international NGOs um, transforming humanitarian action through fast funding, early action and localization. And it'll be really interesting to hear Christina's reflections about her, um, her role within START and uh, how she's grappled with the issues that she's wrote and thought about for so long. And she's also going to reflect on whether COVID-19 is accelerating progress towards local action in progress. So before I pass to Larissa, uh, we want this to be a really interactive event. So please send your questions through the chat box, which is just below the video in front of you. Please do let us know where you're based, what organizations you're working with, if you're working with an organization and the location that you're coming from. And for those of you that are tweeting, please use the HPG Twitter handle, uh, which is at HPG underscore ODI and the hashtag COVID localization. So Larissa, over to you for your presentation. Thanks very much, um, Sorsha. I'm just going to turn on a PowerPoint here uh, to begin. So um, thanks. Um, I'm very pleased to uh, be able to present this report uh, on such an important topic and also during these uncertain times. Um, I also, before we begin, want to highlight the work of um, former HPG colleagues and the local researchers who conducted the research that forms the evidence for this report. Uh, it's too long to summarize all of it, um, so I've picked a few of the insights to talk about this morning. Um, and one thing I want to just emphasize before um, I talk about these insights is that the focus of this two-year um, research agenda was on local humanitarian action as opposed to localization. Obviously, that came up in the research, um, but we, I will be talking about local, um, local action uh, when I'm reporting these findings. So first off, uh, we focused on some of the obstacles to change within the sector, and those were essentially threefold. Uh, the first one I'll talk about is the relativity of local. It's obvious, I think, um, but also worth reiterating that local can be defined in many different ways in relation to geography, um, to cultural, uh, personal or kinship affinities and relationships, as well as networks. So for example, a local NGO might be deeply embedded in and reflect a community, but it may not have ties or connections to those who are displaced in that community, such as IDPs or refugees. 
Equally, diasporas may not be geographically proximate to a community, but they may have deep ties to those living in that community. So these different understandings of local point to the importance of context and also suggest the need to focus on the contributions of local as well as international actors in humanitarian action. A second thing we focus on is the notion of value. And we focus on four different concepts or, or um, dichotomies in the report that you see here on the slide, but I'm just going to mention two. The first is financial as opposed to user value. Much of the focus of localization has been on the proportion of funding that goes to local actors. Obviously, this is important to support local action and uh, these proportions need to change. But our research on local humanitarian action also suggests that, that households themselves in times of crisis value a much broader range of resources. International humanitarian assistance constitutes a minute portion of, um, of aid flows in crisis and is only one source of income among multiple livelihood strategies. Research across our themes uh, of the research um, illustrated the importance of financial and in-kind support from families and kinship networks, for example. People affected by crisis valued the immediacy of assistance and of in-kind support, cooking meals for flood victims, um, or equally now in the time of COVID, cooking meals for those who are self-isolating uh, in their homes. Um, community lending, access to land, these are non-financial often resources that are uh, very important. But by monetizing the relationships and the resources as we often do when we calculate the significance of a humanitarian response, we overestimate the value of money and um, in local humanitarian action and may fail to consider these other kinds of inputs that have greater social value and long-term potential. Another one is the individual as opposed or in um, opposition to communal elements. The research pointed out a discrepancy between the individual nature of much of humanitarian assistance and protection that the formal sector provides and the social dimensions of protection and dignity. Our metrics within the sector tend to focus on individuals, the number of beneficiaries or perhaps the numbers of family units, salary in intakes for individuals. These are easier to count. Um, and therefore easier to document. But the communities themselves often emphasize the importance of the collective. People are often targets of violence based upon uh, social or community identity. Rohingya refugees spoke of community status and mutual respect as central components of their dignity. Kachin communities saw protection of their ethnic identity as equally important to their individual physical protection. So it's not necessarily an either or, but instead a both and. The last one I'll mention briefly now is power. We identified at least three different uh, currencies or dimensions of powers, but I'm only gonna speak to the topic of capacity as power. 
Our research um, highlighted the way that we define and implement capacity, and particularly capacity assessments as an, an invisible form of power. Implied in our definitions of capacity are implicit assessments of who or what constitutes a viable partner, who is eligible to receive funding and who is able to access international structures, networks and alliances, and therefore who can mobilize resources. So this is linked to money and legitimacy, both of which operate as currencies for exercising power within the system, and that constitute obstacles to change. The one thing I will close with um, in my opening remarks is that all is not without positive examples, and we do also write about some of these positive examples of change and shifting power in uh, the report itself. Thanks. Thanks, Larissa. That's fascinating. And this issue of valuing what we can count, um, what we can count in terms of money and what we can see in terms of value, um, and then downplaying other elements is just fascinating. And I know you go into a lot more detail in your reports, but I'm going to ask you a horrible question after such a really thoughtful presentation. Um, I know the report concludes with some lessons and implications. So, you know, what can we do about this? Um, and what recommendations do, do you and Christina suggest? Yeah, so um, we come up with three um, lessons or conclusions. Uh, the first is that uh, local humanitarian action may not always be better but it is always worth, worse without it. Um, and also that it's not necessarily a trade-off. Um, more local does not necessarily mean less international or vice versa. We also focus on power as both an impediment and also a pathway for change. But to get there, uh, we need to redefine the problem and reframe our solutions. So what do we mean by that? Although we don't actually focus on specific recommendations in the report, we do point to a couple of things. First of all, um, to reframe direct implementation as contributing capacity. So a key finding of uh, the research on local humanitarian action, uh, especially as related to capacity, as I mentioned earlier, is that too often it's defined by those who have it. Um, so we attribute capacity to particular actors in the system, and we define that capacity based on who, already, who is sort of um, in the system to begin with. So if we make a semantic shift um, to look for the ways that all actors contribute their capacity in the response, it opens a door to actively look for the capacities that others contribute. So a starting point for all, and particularly for internationals, is um, an exercise to map existing capacities prior to a response. So instead of assuming that capacity doesn't exist, what capacities do exist, and to think of that in a broad way. A second thing that we come or that we offer is to shift in incentives in the system to reward devolved collaborative and complementary action. So again, the research highlighted the incentive structures that operate in favor of the status quo and that perpetuate it. 
and these need to be reoriented. So one thing is to reward for donors to reward collaborative action um, and also for internationals to highlight and publicly promote the contributions of local partners, unless, for example, for security reasons, they need to remain behind the scenes. Another is to rename uh, coordination mandates as complementarity mandates. So that semantic shift again, um, can have a big impact on the way we think about this. Uh, another thing would be to ensure that clusters are open and accessible in terms of language and location, um, or to second internationals to work for local actors rather than um, poaching staff as um, one of the, the things that we document happens often in, an, uh, in a sudden onset response. So to second internationals to work for local actors. So those are a few of the suggestions that we come up with in the report. Okay, excellent. And maybe just before I pass to, to Gloria, just one further follow-up question. We're getting a few questions in the chat about uh, the difference between local action and localization. Um, and I know this report is very much around local action. So maybe you can just tell us a little bit about how you see the difference between the two. Yeah, and so um, we made a deliberate, um, we focused deliberately on what happens at, um, at, at the ground level. The report is titled, and the, and the research agenda was titled From the Ground Up. So we didn't want to focus on the process of, um, of shifting, um, shifting power, shifting um, language to local actors, but instead, what does it mean from a local perspective to define humanitarian action? And therefore, we came up with the four themes of um, capacity and complementarity, of um, uh, the tip of the iceberg on the financial dimensions from um, a household level, uh, on protection, and um, then finally on dignity. Right. So very much local action as local and national action and not through the lens of kind of the oh, international yeah. frame. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Thanks, Larissa. And I'm sure we'll continue to touch back on that really interesting presentation. But Gloria, now over to you. You're joining us from, from Juba in South Sudan. Um, South Sudan, which has been, you know, a very, um, a country where unfortunately you've had a large humanitarian and international humanitarian presence for years. And these questions of legitimacy, who has a seat at the table, what capacities are valued, are really pertinent um, in South Sudan. But South Sudan is also at a very interesting juncture. You've got a new transitional go government, but you've also seen uh, recently, new cases of, of COVID-19. So over to you for your reflections from, from South Sudan and from Titi Foundation on, on some of the comments that, that Larissa has, has made um, and whether you're seeing any changes yet in relation to COVID-19. Thank you so much. Um, I'm Gloria from Titi Foundation, and thank you, Larissa, for the wonderful presentation. Um, mine is just a reflection on actually 
what you have just been talking about, and I will be looking at that, that from the lens of um, the power imbalance and how it affects directly South Sudan in the humanitarian. Um, one of the things I could discuss from the point of local actors is that one of the main challenges that have been brought about by this effect of power imbalance has been on the limitations of local partners not being able to easily access funding for programming and be able to you know, make quick interventions to the most vulnerable. And most of these discussions is based around, you know, um, around the issue of lack of capacity. That has always been the discussion for a, for a very long time. And we see that not only with the international um, institutions, but also from the donor capacity, whereby, you know, specific donors will find a specific ent entity because it hails from a particular location and things like that. So that thereby creates the gap and we will definitely, as long as that gap is not breached or something is not done about it, we will always continue discussing this issue of capacity of local partners for a very long time, unless something maybe is done about that. The other thing that we are seeing is on the issue of local actors being weakened in terms of decision making. The reason being also that, you know, um, one, they lack the, technolo the technolo technological um, capacity and then the available resources or reserves that they do not have compared to our counterparts, the international actors. And with that, then it still gives, you know, um, it still gives the international actors more power dynamics to drive, you know, the discussions, especially in terms of our implementations and how things should run, especially in South Sudan. We see that Talking about the entire humanitarian um, sector or setting is that majority of all seats are being taken by international actors and we just have a very small space whereby sometimes even when you bring about an opinion, it's not taken into consideration because there's the underlook that yes, you do not have the resources. So who are you to, dis to discuss and you know, in, on, this, um, on this panel or something like that. So. Um, those are some of the challenges we are undergoing um, in South Sudan. And then um, a third point is on the issue of local actors at the pre at present, um, given the also hard times of the pandemic around us, to readjust, you know, quickly to the realities of COVID-19. And this is because um, we've not had clear contingency plans, not just as local actors in South Sudan, but also as an entire country, right from the government and this, this division currently that is available in that the international actors, you know, are the ones at the forefront of the COVID-19. What do we do or how do we follow or, you know, how do we readjust COVID and the already worsening um, humanitarian crisis in the country. We're also having a scenario whereby, you know, our we have a very fragile political environment at the moment with no clear um, with no clear governance in place at the moment. 
because the revitalized government has actually not put everything in place. So we are still just in that limbo politically, and then we have the mess of crisis in place, and now we have COVID-19 challenges, and nobody has a very clear pathway that, you know, this is the way we all need to go. Everybody comes with their own theory of how they think this is the right way to go. Um, finally, we have also, in South Sudan right now, we're also seeing a rising localization activism in the country, which is a positive thing to a certain degree, but I would say we need to go in with a lot of caution so that we do not um, create tension along the way between locals and internationals. So there's really um, greater need to navigate very carefully on that agenda at the moment. Um, and maybe a few recommendations that I would suggest going forward is that one, um, at the moment also, I think COVID-19 has brought in an opportunity that we could all be in position to leverage and maximize you know, um, the abilities or the value that local partners bring on the table. And this is through, um, we see that in the country there are restrictions that are happening. And it's so unfortunate that initially when the COVID was declared for the very first time in South Sudan, it came through a UN agency personnel. So there's all this, um, there's all this perception that, you know, the UN brought COVID to South Sudan. But being local actors, I think we're able to leverage um, on that so that we also do not stop our humanitarian interventions in the country by coming on board to assist also our counterparts and, you know, be a gap to be able to bridge and have these discussions happening with our governments and our, our local populations, be able to inform them so that um, interventions keep going and happening without restricting our other counterparts who are the INGOs and the UN from continuing delivering services to the most vulnerable populations. So that is one leverage we could look onto. But at the same time also, um, the, you know, the context around local knowledge access and then the information that local partners are able to easily ascertain from let's say, um, government institutions faster compared to, you know, if it was an INGO counterpart, you know, with an INGO or an international personnel. Before you get to a, to a government ministry to inquire for something, the procedures may be a little bit different from when it was a local personnel that goes into, you know, have access to that kind of information. So we could leverage that as a, as a humanitarian sector in South Sudan so that we also don't, um, don't hamper with activities in the country. And maybe finally, I would say that the donors need to now um, look at COVID as an opportunity in that um, they could also be in position to work with local actors to continue delivering services. In the context of South Sudan right now, we're having as of now about 1,300 cases or more. And Definitely, we know that the entire country in the past years have been serviced basically through the humanitarian sector. All um, necessary services do not come from the government, but through the humanitarian setting. But we're now seeing a gap in that a lot of our international counterparts are being evacuated out of the country to nearby countries that have better health facilities. So putting in the front line now the local actors so this is when um, 
donors also have to now come to the table and rethink their bureaucratic tendencies and try and you know um, do something about that either to loosen the process so that activities keep happening at the same time we can also be in position to respond to the most vulnerable populations also during this COVID pandemic. Thank you very much. Gloria, that was fascinating. And uh, we uh, so much, um, so many interesting points. And I'm particularly interested in this issue about um, how, you know, the tensions between nationals and internationals and how nationals can play a complementary role in terms of being the interface for internationals with communities and governments. I think it, it, it presents a, a kind of a new angle on what we talk about in terms of complementary action. Um, so perhaps we can go into more detail on that. Um, but first, we want to hear from Minnie. Uh, Minnie, over to you in terms of both your reflections on the findings of the report, but also whether you see, maybe in Gloria's language, new pathways um, as a result of, of, of COVID-19. Thank you very much, Sorsha, for giving us the opportunity to take part in this uh, conversation. No? I just hope that our lived experiences can contribute to the continuing or ongoing dialogue uh, on buzzwords of today, no? localization, localization of aid, local or national humanitarian actors. Um, as to uh, the uh, how does this resonate to our work, uh, I think um, that has always been the case. The international NGOs are more valued, not only because of their speed, their scale, and technical know-how, but because of the resources that they bring in. No? In our case, for example, uh, it is primarily how the government acknowledges those who provide support. No? For example, uh, it broadcasts uh, with gratitude through the national media donors who have committed millions and millions of pesos but never acknowledged local organizations who set up community kitchens or community washing stations, conduct relief drive, and in fact, some are being arrested no, for violation uh, uh, of so-called um, uh, lockdown uh, procedures. No. Government agencies also would acknowledge international uh, NGOs, but rarely acknowledge uh, local NGOs. Um, just like in the past, collaborations between national NGOs and international agencies have been imbalanced by resources. There are limited opportunities for the national NGOs to take an active role in decision making and in the discourse of response. But I would say there is, uh, of course, a positive uh, story. And I want to look back at the Typhoon Higher Response in 2013, which spanned for almost five years, uh, which paved the way for the greater recognition of the capacity of uh, local and national humanitarian actors. One of the concrete expression would be the handing over of follow-on projects and uh, programs to local humanitarian actors. And partnership also went beyond humanitarian response. Um, but I suppose this is true to local and national organizations, which have shown their capacity and maybe have 
pass the scrutiny and standards of their international NGO partners. Or they have shown willingness to adapt to what is required in terms of improving systems, standards, and policies. So this evolution of complementation leverages the relative strengths of all stakeholders and would improve the effectiveness of the humanitarian system in the Philippines. So um, uh, are there any changes happening in the context of COVID-19 pandemic? And hopefully the, 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 those that we have uh, built on during the typhoon, a higher response can be of uh, the, the leverages for a more uh, complementary uh, working relationship between the international NGOs and the local uh, actors. Uh, with the global pandemic, um, this has brought in uh, global challenges, but contextualized challenges. No, It is making a uh, massive toll on the international economies and so on on resources too. And the pandemic worsened the already dwindling resources at the global level. And it also exposed the increased vulnerability of nations with weaker public health system and economies, thus needing more support. No? So particularly to NCCP's ongoing humanitarian response, um, we still cannot say whether there is increased support and cooperation, but for sure, our long-standing international partners have sustained their support, not just on more material response, but in resonating our advocacies in the midst of shrinking space, uh, advocacy for human rights and upholding human dignity. It is also our advocacy that programmatic priorities and focuses be reconsidered and that a need to shift gears towards recovery and resilience through coordination and collaboration. So which means in general, in, in, in to sum it up, it remains to be seen whether there is change in the way funding support is redirected to the national or uh, um, local frontline organizations. We still have to see whether the contribution of the local or national responders in this uh, pandemic is making an impact to the needs of the affected population. Thank you. Thanks, Minnie. And really interesting as well to hear that the, you know, it's not just, I guess, the international system that provides more visibility to international um, actors, but, you know, in the Philippines that the government itself acknowledges and recognizes the role of international donors, of international um, agencies and not their own uh, national civil society. So really interesting contributions there. But again, before we, we go into more detail in terms of, of the Philippines, I'll pass to Christina. Um, and Christina, you're one of the authors of the report, but you've also been working and thinking about this issue um, when you were with HPG for about, you know, for years. Um, it's been a long-standing theme of research for HPG. And now you're in an interesting position because you're the head of the START Network um, and you're grappling with trying to put these issues into practice. And yeah, over to you to tell us about how you see it now from this interesting vantage point um, and 
the challenges and the opportunities within START. And, and then a little bit back again to COVID and whether you are seeing COVID as an opportunity for a reset or whether like many, uh, it remains to be seen. Christina. Um, maybe we can just ask the moderators to unmute Christina. It should be unmuted. You can't hear me? Go ahead. We can hear okay. you now. Sorry about that. It looked like I was unmuted. Um, anyway, I was just saying thanks, Sarcha, for this. Um, it's really good to be back um, in a conversation at ODI and HPG, um, where I spent so many wonderful years, um, including doing this research on local humanitarian action. And thanks very much to Larissa, Gloria, and Minnie for providing some really good food for thought um, as I reflect not only on the report, but also in my, in my current position. And you're right, um, I have the privileged position of being a co-author of this report and having you know, spent time for two years doing this research. But now with a new vantage point of being the head of an organization, really working to implement some of the recommendations we put into the report and working for change in the humanitarian system. Um, for those of you who don't know about START Network, we are a membership organization of 53 local, national, and international NGOs working to drive change in the global aid system by tackling what we see are its most enduring problems, and that's low and reactive funding, centralized power, and a resistance to change. And at the end of March, we launched Start Fund COVID-19, which is a pooled fund for NGOs to get fast funding on the ground for community preparedness and responses. Um, when we launched the fund in early April, we received 85 alerts from our members working in 69 countries asking for 20 million pounds for preparedness and response activities for COVID-19. To date, we've only been able to fund 32 projects across 21 countries dispersing just under five million pounds. And I will get to what that I think that means uh, a bit later when I talk about COVID-19. But my main reflection on the report from where I stand now is, you know, while the research told us that there was optimism and activism around local humanitarian action, as many of um, my colleagues on the panel have pointed out, and almost an air of inevitability around localiz localization, um, and examples of some really bright spots in that. Um, for me now, localization, while still critical to the continued legitimacy and effectiveness of humanitarian aid, is by no means inevitable. It is not a natural evolution of our system. There is not unstoppable momentum toward it. Um, it is not being served even by the commitments that we've made to it. It requires not the passive commitments that we have, but it requires deliberate action, affirmative action, deliberate power shifts, and the opening up of operational space by the international community. And I think in a few key ways. One, we should be asking ourselves, why not local? In the same way we now ask ourselves, why not cash? 
we should be having to demonstrate each and every time why we are not respond, why we need an international response. Second, and I think you know some of my colleagues have already said this on the panel, we need to support the organizations and not just the response. Some of our smaller members at Start Network have been asking us, you know, in, throughout this COVID-19 response, they need Wi-Fi, they need Zoom licenses, they need laptops. They need to be able to operate as we, as more kind of robust and well-resourced organizations can operate in a remote working situation or a virtual working situation. Some of our larger members are asking for leadership support and coaching, high-level skills development in operations and financial management. In other words, what organizations need is support to be stronger organizations that can deliver lasting impact and value. Um, and then the third thing I think we need is, you know, to, to, as international organizations, to broker and to support, but not to compete with funding for local organizations. If you have access to funders, um, make those introductions globally, locally, and then get out of the way, because what local organizations need are direct access to those funding relationships, not access through other organizations. And this, I guess, brings me to the question you asked, Sorcha, of, of COVID-19 and whether you know, this particular emergency or this particular crisis is going to dismantle some of these barriers to localization. And, you know, from what I have seen, if we continue as we are today, my affirmative answer, my, my, my definitive answer is no, it is not going to dismantle those barriers. You know, in many ways, COVID-19 has all of the right ingredients. It is global in scale, it is local in presentation, it doesn't discriminate, we've got restricted international travel, restricted movement in country, breaks in supply chains, making it harder to move people and, and supplies around. Um, we need speed in the response, speed in the preparedness activities, and the need for sustained actions, even with restricted access. And all of the lessons that we've learned from Ebola are instructive here. But instead, what I've seen is a, a rollback of localization by the international community, a defaulting to old ways of working, a referring to type, protectionism, particularly among donors um, who are operating through their traditional channels, who are protecting their own national institutions at the expense not only of their localization commitments, but of the overall effectiveness on the ground. Um, what would it be to localize a COVID-19 response right now? Number one, significant fast funding to local NGOs injected immediately through the multiple channels that are available to us country-based school funds, the START Fund, community foundations, and through international organizations. Those relationships are strong and fast. Um, they need the tools to act. Exemptions from lockdowns, connectivity, hardware, sustained access to financial institutions, um, and access uh, to, to information um, through, through the clusters uh, and other types of coordination mechanisms. Um, and they also need to be at the center of decision-making about what the needs are, where the priorities are, and who is best placed to act. So I guess what I would end by saying is localization critical to COVID-19? Absolutely. It is, is it inevitable in this response? It is not, unless we take affirmative action to do so. Okay, great. And we're getting some really interesting questions um, already through the chat. Um, and yeah, just to call out to all of you who are um, online, we are taking questions now. Do do um, tell us where you're you're coming from, whether that's a location or an organisation. 
Well, already we have a, a really interesting question, which I think I'm going to present back to, to all of you. Um, I think, Gloria, you were very complimentary in terms of um, what you highlighted. You said there is local activism um, and that ac actually local actors can play a complementary role in, in bridging some of the, the tensions um, and the rumours that are existing in South Sudan around international actors. Um, Minnie, you talked about how there's been very good complementarity um, on the back of the typhoon response um, and that that um, is a model that could be applied more in the Philippines. And Christina, you've you've laid the gauntlet down a bit more. It's not inevitable that there needs to be affirmative action. But what one of the questions here is, don't international organizations have a moral responsibility to decline contracts, to step out of the way and to step back? And we've seen with the major COVID humanitarian appeal currently that the lion's share has gone to international actors. It is business as usual. Um, most of it has gone to UN agencies, a small amount to um, international NGOs, and less than 2% to national organizations. So we're not, certainly not seeing a kind of stepping out of the way or um, a shift change in practice. So, so given that, what, what would you say? And maybe, Gloria, starting with you, um, and then Minnie, and then um, back to Larissa and Christina as the authors of the report. Do, how should agencies, international organizations, manage this? Should they step out of the way? And what are the risks of international organizations actually stepping out of the way? So first off to you, Gloria, um, in terms of um, whether international organizations now need to actually step out of the way at a time like this. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, from my own perspective, complementarity, not that they should completely step out of the way at this particular time, but I think it's high time that they played the role of holding hand that they keep talking of no capacity. For me, that would be the best approach. Give them the opportunity to be able to shine with um, whatever expertise they have at the moment, and then let's build on that expertise so that it becomes better and giving them the opportunity to play within that space. But it's not, I think, something that we are seeing in action, and it should be just a very deliberate move from donors and the UN at this particular moment to be able to, you know, go back into the commitments that they put forward on paper and bring that to, you know, to life. So mine would just be to urge them to, you know, um, give people the, the local actors and to some degree the international organizations a portion to be able to lead in the process and they sit back and guide them. Okay, fantastic. And Minnie, over to you in terms of um, this issue of, yeah, is it complementarity or is it actually international actors just stepping out of the way? I think uh, uh, for the for us, uh, especially in the in the NCCP, we've been talking about partnership and uh, um, a cooperation. And I think uh, 
international partners don't necessarily have to uh, to step uh, uh, as, uh, aside but i think um they have they they can act as the bridge between the uh, the source of uh, funds and uh, the the local actors i think they also have the responsibility to uh, to show uh, the 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 capacity of their local partners uh, the to build up the credibility and the personality of their local partners uh, that will uh, that will uh, give the leverage for these uh, uh, funding institutions to have a, a um, to have uh, this um, uh, commitment to to support local action so it's more we can we can we can uh, we can uh, look at a different way of partnership of uh, uh, between the the international NGOs and the the local NGOs of uh, uh, building uh, the 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 capacity of one another, no, and the, at the same time, uh, uh, standing by the their local partners. Okay, great. And Christina, I want to put a bit more of a spin on this, um, and I guess this issue of on the affirmative action on the one hand and international organizations stepping out of the space and what you see i guess is some of the risks to that in the current environment where potentially we have a global recession on the way and diminishing aid budgets overall we have a, a situation where there's a real lack of global international cooperation in the face of of covid um, and a real turn to um I guess inward, where um, leaders, communities, societies are looking at their own context um, and not necessarily at, at uh, the risks um, that the pandemic is posing in other crises. So what do you see potentially as some of the risks of uh, internationals, I guess, stepping out of the way? Um, and I guess the political risk, but also a concern that, you know, are we going to see just a diminishing concern for, for humanitarian action? Um, and do you see that as potentially um, a risk to um, what you see as a kind of not an inevitable localization, um, but actually that um, overall there's going to be diminishing opportunity for all, and that will hit local actors particularly? Yeah, thanks for that. Is my microphone on? Because it looks like it's on, but okay, great. Um, yeah, thanks, Sorsha. You know, I think that the earlier question is, you know, do internationals have a moral responsibility to step out of the way? Yes, a moral responsibility, they have an operational responsibility, but also this burning platform where, you know, you see that they may not be able to um, to respond in the ways and with the footprints and the and the and the resources behind them that they have in the past. So there's a combination of push and pull, I think, here. Um, and maybe I go back to the report on this to answer your question. That local action uh, is not always better in every situation, but without local humanitarian action, humanitarian aid is definitely worse. And I guess that's where I would see. Um, that we do need to see a stepping back of uh, the international community to create that operational space deliberately for local organizations to step in. But I also think that we need to see the support of the international community 
to allow to, I guess, afford local organizations the opportunity to step into the space that they may not be able to occupy. Because what I would hate to see is uh, that the international community steps back, that resources are unavailable to local organizations, but all of a sudden all the expectations are on local organizations to get things right. And will that set set local humanitarian action up to fail at the very time when as internationals we need to be stepping back but in a way that is supportive and complementary to local action not to say okay it's all on you now we're going to watch this happen knowing that when things aren't resourced properly they can't have you know you will you will have an ineffective response no matter who you are so i think there is a responsibility to step back but to support and underpin a local humanitarian action with resources, with political support, um, and with you know, brokering relationships and access to funding and, and supplies and things like technology to enable local organizations to do their jobs. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks, Christina. Larissa, do you want to say anything more about this kind of how we fine tune complementarity? Um, and Christina's also spoken a little bit from the report, but there's lots more on this issue of complementary action. Um, so yeah, your reflection on this issue. Yeah, and I um, I, I agree with um, everything that's been said. I would just add um, or re-emphasize that I think the 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 danger, the tension that comes with a pullback of international action that um, does, as Christina said, set up lo uh, local uh, organizations to fail. So um, ag agree that that stepping out of the way can't be just an um, abrogation of responsibility. Uh, and I think the default is to, especially for donors, I think the easiest thing is to channel funds through, say, the UN, um, for example, or, but, you know, a shift to more flexible funding in a sort of top-down approach is really important, as is that um, sort of bottom-up rising localization activism that we talk about in the report and that Gloria also mentioned, um, as well as um, what might be termed a middle-out approach. So all of these aspects are really crucial and it can't just be about one type of change over and against the other. Um, so I'll end with that though. Okay, great. I've got a very different question um, and it speaks a little bit to, to what you were saying, Minnie, in the, in the Philippines. Um, and it comes from um, a PhD candidate in Turkey. Um, and it talks about the responsibility of local government. Um, and, and I guess national governments um, and the role that they play in actually diminishing local capacity through regulation um, of uh, local responders and national actors. Um, and, and you pointed out this, Minnie, in relation to, I guess, national government um, crediting international donors um, um, and international responders. I guess the point here is, is through regulation and often for political reasons, um, governments undermining the capacity, the role, sometimes the funding opportunities that um, national and local actors um, can, can access. And so do you want to talk a little bit more about that, Mini, um, and what you see the role of, of local and national government in supporting 
their own um, responders to play a more prominent role and to make sure that this complementary action uh, plays out in practice. And then maybe we can go back around the panel um, again and take different angles on this. Um, I think one of the uh, uh, one of the problem that we uh, encountered in this COVID response is that uh, basically the response of the government is uh, we call it militaristic approach, uh, but we've been uh, emphasizing that this is a public health, uh, this is a medical issue, this is a public health uh, issue. Uh, unfortunately, uh, most of the responses and even the, the plan of the government is more uh, uh, pushing for the uh, military way of doing things. Like, for example, um, providing uh, the social amelioration program. This is the cash uh, um, uh, assistance to affected families where the government, uh, the national government said that uh, it will no longer uh, um, course it through the local government units, but uh, they will let the armed forces of the Philippines to distribute uh, the social amelioration program. Uh, it, and it's very, it's very discouraging because in the Philippines <clears throat> there are so many that the, the the there are so many non-government organizations. There are many. Uh, civil society organizations, humanitarian organizations, even the faith-based organizations are abound, but uh, and the local government units are also in place. So um, I think uh, <clears throat> it it redounds down to uh, how the government looks at the the problem uh, in 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 our thinking and in our uh, assessment with the NCCT. They, they more look at it as a military, as a, uh, in a militaristic uh, manner than a public health uh, issue. Interesting. Okay. And then, Gloria, over to you in terms of yeah, how you see the role of, 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 of local governance and, and national governance in South Sudan um, and um, how they can facilitate and undermine and local responders. Thank you so much, Sosha. Um, mine would be that, for example, in the case of South Sudan, um, a lot of that, for example, has been dominated by international community. And there's now this outlook from even the national government that, you know, the locals do not have sufficient um, expertise to deliver certain activities. So in most times, they will look at it from an angle of, oh, we call upon the international community to do this and this and this for the populations. So that I think in its own demands the, diminishes the, um, the expertise, the local expertise that is available, which I think if, they could have looked at it from an angle of let's call out to the international actors to be able to come and you know um, strengthen the already existing capacity of the local actors so that we build something better. It would be more appropriate from my own perspective because the thing is and the reality that lies ahead is that international partners are not always going to be available forever. 
So there will come a time and they will be out and local actors will still remain in the ground. So I think if they looked at it from calling upon international actors to come in and complement the already existing local capacity, I think that will make more sense, which is not in most times the case. Okay, um, Larissa, over to you in terms of, yeah, the degree to which this issue of, um, um, I guess, the intersection between national governments um, and local responders and whether the, the research touched upon that. And then maybe lastly to, to you, Christina. Yeah, thanks, Sorsha. Um, that's a great question uh, that we got. Um, it, and here I would say this is precisely where complementarity comes in, um, that internationals can be, um, you know, first of all, to, to speak with local actors. What can we do in this era of diminishing space? What can we do to support your work, um, you know, to focus on, um, you know, uh, advocacy or, um, or, um, discussion dialogue with local and national authorities to create that operational space for local action um, and that becomes a form of complementarity and really exemplifies what we write about that it's not a zero-sum game um, it may mean a shift in the types of activities that uh, international NGOs international actors um, play but it doesn't necessarily mean a diminished role. It just means a different kind of role. And, but to, to, to figure out what that role is in discussion with local actors. Um, I will say, though, that that's, um, we did not actually focus in the research or mention specifically in the report the role of local and national authorities or also the role of the UN um, in um, in the local humanitarian action, obviously it came up, but that was not actually a focus of the um, of the research. Okay, thanks, Larissa. And then lastly, Christina, to you in terms of how you're seeing that now in your vantage point in in start. Yeah, maybe just two very quick examples. One a more response based one, and one maybe thinking more about risk. Um, on the response side, the way that start, our START Fund works and START Fund COVID-19 works is that we have um, our members raise alerts to us asking for, uh, for a certain amount of funding to, for certain activities. Um, and in our response to COVID-19, many of those alerts were raised in collaboration with local, provincial, or national governments, which means that when organizations got together to decide where the priority needs were, what geographies uh, required attention, um, they did so with governments, with different levels of government at the table. Um, and what that says to me is there is some degree of coordination with what national priorities are, what national capacity is, and what NGOs, um, our NGO members, could be doing to complement that, that, that capacity and those priorities. Um, but it also means that, that governments at, at many levels are also helping to identify the problems and identify the solutions in this decision-making group. So I think it's government participation in decision-making alongside the civil society, uh, civil society organization. Um, another way that we interact with governments at Start Network is um, in defining risk ahead of a crisis. 
we have many kind of financial instruments that we work on to anticipate crises before they happen and get fast funding to the ground before crises happen. And in that respect, we work with governments either to buy insurance policies against drought, which we did in Senegal, or we use local meteorological organizations or local risk modelers, academics, really define what a risk looks like, and particularly um, a disaster-related risk will look like in-country in order to be able to target funding early to those mitigation activities that mean that the, the, the disaster won't turn into, the hazard won't turn into a disaster later on. So I think you can work with governments on the response side, but also in anticipating some of these crises before they occur. Okay, fantastic. I'm, I have to say I'm struggling with uh, to keep up with the questions. There's so many really interesting questions coming in, but maybe I can throw a few of them back to you now, because um, and you can choose which ones you think are more important. So we're getting a lot of questions around how local and national organizations interact with international processes um, in various ways. So one around language and language barriers, um, and the degree to which, you know, national organizations need to be able to speak the terminology, but also the language to, to participate, and this being a, a huge issue. Um, but there's also questions and two of them, one from Myanmar saying, actually, coordination structures in Myanmar, because international actors have such limited access, that um, national players don't really need to be at the table. Um, and you have a, um, a kind of a relative imbalance of power with, with internationals needing nationals much more. So should we be encouraging local and national organizations into these coordination structures? Or should we be looking at different coordination structures where nationals are, are brought to the fore? Um, and then there's a third question around this intersection between uh, national and internationals, which is around the grand bargain um, and what promise um, the localization work stream and efforts through um, localization offer for local um, and national actors and how would we hold internationals to their commitments around this. So there's a whole set of questions around, um, around that. Um, then I think there's some more specific questions, um, and um, these are particularly to, to Minnie and, and Gloria, but I think also, Christina, you, you pointed to this too, and it's around funding. Um, they're saying there's a lot of talk um, around different forms of funding for local and national actors, but from um, your point of view, what works best? Is it um, partnerships with INGOs? Is it country-based pool funds? Um, is it more direct funding from donors, recognizing that although lots of donors, you know, talk the talk in terms of supporting local actors, but actually find it really difficult in practice. So actually, if you were to choose, what's the best form of funding um, for, for local actors? Um, and then lastly, um, there's um, um, a question around um, how we can better support civil society networks in, um, in, in different countries um, and whether a focus on kind of 
individual organizations are is misplaced and that we should be rather trying to support networks of national organizations or networks of of nationals and internationals um and then the last one um is around um covid as as a risk and actually um whether we're seeing um you know diminishing supplies diminishing opportunities for uh partnership um and that uh, rather than a shift happening actually there's a major risk to some of the complementarity that you're talking about and not just in terms of maybe the politics that i pointed to but some of the actual um operational realities and how how difficult will complementary um, and more partnership approaches be at a time when um, aid supplies are restricted, mobility is restricted. So I guess over to you um, and, and for you to choose which ones you think um, you can speak to, to most easily. Um, many of them are quite practical and um, operational, so maybe uh, Larissa, we'll come to you last, but um, Minnie, maybe first over to you um, and for, for you to maybe touch on one or two of the points that you think are particularly relevant to the um, National Council of Churches in the Philippines. Thank you, Sorcha. Uh, yeah, I want to, I, I want to uh, uh, take, to get, to talk about a bit of the language barrier, I think, uh, which uh, uh, usually would uh, uh, pull back the participation of local local uh, organizations, and uh, because during Typhoon Haiyan, that that has been one of our our advocacy, and I would say uh, I think um, local and national humanitarian actors should be more aggressive and courageous enough to assert that they too have the capacity. They have the skills and most especially the commitment to be in this work, no? Um, and we've been saying that we may not be um, we may not be able to eloquently speak the humanitarian jargon, but I'm sure there are there is a local or national equivalent for that language, no? And we may not be at par with technical skills or even the technology, but I'm sure there are innate capacity and skills that could match what is required of. So what I am saying is that um, uh, do not look for an apple tree or a fig tree in the Philippines, but rather look for a mango tree because that is what is native to us. No, I think it is important that we look at what is there instead of looking what is not there. I think that's for the you know, for the language and the participation of national NGOs in the in the whole humanitarian uh, mechanism system. The other thing is in terms of um, uh, what kind of funding. Uh, I think in our case there are uh, we are we are uh, we've been we have uh, experienced uh, the pooled funds or uh, funding through consortia. And at the same time, um, bilateral partnerships, no, uh, and this all works well. I think one of the one of the things that we just have to uh, consider is that, um, uh, as I have said, international partners can bridge the the local and the uh, and the source of funds 
at the same time, I think it is also important for the mentoring part of the international NGOs, not leaving them just uh, alone. No, uh, there are, for example, now there are opportunities. Uh, there are so many funding opportunities. In fact, no, that our funding, our international partners uh, uh, provide to us, and the uh, uh, the good thing is that we open hear, hear them say. Uh, if you want to to apply for this uh, for these uh, opportunities, we are here to help you. And I think that is what a true expression of partnership is. Okay, I love that. Look for the mango tree. Um, it's a really lovely expression. Uh, Christina, over to you. What which issues would you like to to pick up on? Great, thanks. Um, can can you hear me? Yes. Um, I'll pick up on some of the, the, I guess, more operational ones as well. Um, you know, the question about funding, which best channel, which is the best channel? Now, of course, I'm going to say it's Dart Network, obviously. Um, but if I take a step back from that for a moment, I guess I would say the question shouldn't be what channel. The question should be about impact before instrument, if you will. We should, you should ask yourself, what is your objective? What do you need to achieve? And then what funding channel has the qualities that you need in order to be able to achieve? For me, in this response, it's about fast funding to local NGOs, direct funding to local NGOs. Um, funds, obviously, for response, but as much of that funding going to response as possible, so not um, through lots of different channels that will, or lots of different layers that will take funding away from that. But then also there is some funding for cost recovery for local organizations within that. Um, you know, I, I guess I just have to say that so little funding is going to NGOs um, at all, irrespective of whether you're international or local, that I think at this point any NGO channel, international NGO channel, local NGO channel is important. Um, I've heard um, about some statistics that more than half of um, international NGOs are using unrestricted funding and their reserves to support their COVID-19 response. And what that says to me is that irrespective of the channel, there is not enough funding um, and, not, and funding is not getting to NGOs fast enough or in enough quantity to be able to, to support this response. Um, and then maybe to your question about supporting networks of organizations, again, um, the self-interested me would say yes. Um, as Start Network, I think that uh, the future of this sector is in networks and not institutions. Um, we can't, no one of us can do all of this. No one of us has the expertise, has the money, um, especially as we see economic downturn, as we see shrinking civil society space, as we see that kind of protectionism um, of, of one's own, which is understandable in this situation. You know, if we see that, we can't, we, we need to be working through peers um, by pooling expertise, pooling resources, and pooling risk. I would say absolutely networks of organizations. Um, and then is there a risk of COVID-19 is minimizing or downsizing opportunities for partnership? I guess what I would see is a risk for me is that COVID-19 is used um, as a, to tactically accelerate some aspects of localization because um, it's in, because we haven't tactically it's important for some for, for, for local organizations to be uh, implementing certain areas of the response now, but that it remains a tactical opportunity and not a systemic opportunity for change. So it's not that partnerships aren't forming because I'm seeing a lot of opportunity for good partnership, but whether this is a short term tactic or a longer term shift, 
ink is yet to be seen. Okay, Gloria, um, over to you to, to pick and choose. And I should say that, yeah, these are really great questions that, um, that you've provided. So, so thank you very much. But Gloria, which ones resonate most with you? Okay. Um, my colleagues have already mentioned things around COVID and which works are best to support. For me, I think I'll look at the other um, the other question of coordination, um, that coordination, I think, should be balanced in that um, there is both complements of nationals and, and international actors within the coordination framework, because there's the expertise that the internationals will bring on board, but also there's the local context that the locals will bring on the table. So I think on the issue of coordination, which is so clearly um, stated, especially in South Sudan at the moment, whereby we use the CASA systems and we ensure that if the lead, the, the lead coordinator is an international and then the colleague has got to be a national partner. So those are some of the things that we're working with closely with the South Sudan NGO Forum. But at the same time also, let's not forget looking at the issues of coordination in relation to gender, which is, I think, a discussion that at the moment in South Sudan we're trying to push a little bit more harder so that we have more space for women-led institutions to also be able to contribute on the table. Given the long history of South Sudan whereby, you know, women were mainly marginalized in all kinds of activities. So at the moment, it's also one of the forefront things that we're advocating for in terms of coordination um, units and levels in the country. Thank you. Thank you. And I think there's a whole related discussion about power dynamics within local actors. We talk a lot about power dynamics between international and local and, um, and national. And I think when we talk about this agenda, we talk less about power you know, how power dynamics and operational practice within national and local actors and responders play out. So that's a really important point, uh, Gloria. And maybe the last word to you, Larissa, in terms of um, the issues that were thrown up. And I'm noting that no one's talking about grand bargain and localization. So if you want to touch on that, I'm putting it out there, but um, not forcing you to uh, as well. Great. Yeah, I figured since nobody else dealt with that one, um, although uh, maybe I will sort of also punt on that one um, in the sense that I know that HPG is, uh, you know, is doing the report on the grand bargain. And so I will just say, um, stay tuned. I'll do the plug for HPG instead of you having to do it. Uh, Stay tuned for later this month um, because I, I do believe there will be some something on the grand bargain. And so um, I will leave it for that. But uh, just a couple of reactions to me, um, you know, really, again, great questions. Uh, but I think they demonstrate and I think they demonstrate the importance of a shift and the need for a shift in our thinking. Um, and, you know, as Christina said, working from a different starting point, instead of thinking about what channels of funding, you know, what's the impact that we want to achieve? And so for me, the question about the coordination structure 
where, in Myanmar, I believe, um, where internationals need nationals more than the other way around, I think that's a great example of shifting our thinking to a more complementary, like a complementarity mandate. So in other words, the question, rather than saying, how do we need to coordinate? It could be, how do we, um, how do we create complementarity? And where are the places where internationals can assist national organizations? And a coordination slash complementarity structure then becomes the way to ask that question and answer that question. Um, same thing for sort of networks. Um, I do think networks are extremely important, and that gets to our um, recommendation around the importance of collaborative and devolved spaces for action. Um, and, you know, networks are one way that that can happen. Uh, and then finally, um, I'll touch on the, um, the question of the language barriers. I think language is, again, um, one of these ways that we invisibly define capacity as, you know, speaking English or speaking French or Spanish, um, although I think English and French are the, the more common ones in terms of um, the, the international system and cluster meetings and such. So, and this um, we address in the report in terms of the, the different kinds of value and, um, you know, the need to equate or emphasize contextual expertise, which also includes language, which also um, includes the terminologies of the humanitarian sector. Um, and I loved Minnie's uh, example of, you know, you look for different trees. You, do, you don't just try and replace the tree, but you look for what are the native trees. Um, so I think that um, that to me is part of contextual expertise, and we tend to focus in the humanitarian system on the technical expertise over and against the contextual. Uh, and I think that um, that's yet another example of sort of the invisible ways that we exercise power within the system, uh, and that needs to shift over. Okay, we've got five minutes to go, so I'm going to give you all 30 seconds, um, even less than I had promised, but 30 seconds. Um, if you were going to ask for one thing in terms of um, what could be a silver lining um, from COVID-19, and what I'm hearing is not only that it's, it's potentially not a silver lining, but there were major risks actually, both from the questions and from, from your comments. But if you're going to point one thing um, um, and um, that you would hope for would emerge out of that, out of, out of this pandemic, what would that be in terms of more complementary action and um, more support for, for local responders? So first to, to you, Christina, um, as um, one of the co-authors of, of the report. Um, thanks. You know, I think that, well, I've been kind of, um, not so optimistic about COVID-19 as being a game changer for localization. I think, um, you know, based on what we wrote in the report as the things that do need to shift, including power, including money, including capacity, things like that. 
um, you know, we've seen the best and the worst of the humanitarian sector in this crisis. We've seen a revert to type, a revert to old ways of working. But I've also seen huge amounts of solidarity. I've seen um, visible signs of complementarity and collaboration where organizations are coming together to prioritize needs. The thing that is so defining about COVID-19 is that it is global mostly at the same time with so many layers of uh, needs, whether they're the primary medical needs or the secondary more socioeconomic needs, um, they're all happening kind of at once in every country. And it's overwhelming as an organization, as you know, at Start Network, as a funder, it's overwhelming to think of how do you prioritize needs? And I think that what, we've, what I've seen is a coming together of different styles of organizations to really think through what are the priorities in a crisis where it is impossible to prioritize. And it's what it's, and, and not in a way that's competitive, in a way that's really about who is best placed to do this work. Mm. Um, and I suppose what it means to me is that when we are compelled to collaborate, we are very good at it. And why don't we take up that gauntlet of collaboration, use this crisis to, to, to really play to our strengths um, in terms of collaboration and pick up that gauntlet that I laid down at the beginning. Okay, fantastic. So play to our strengths and there's a real opportunity and you're seeing it already. Gloria, 30 seconds if you can. Thank you. Um, opportunity in this, very optimistic on, on the way forward and as Christina mentioned a little bit earlier, is that we've seen a lot of people come to, I mean, come in solidarity together, um, getting to collaborate in different forms of interventions. And I'm hoping that anyway, even after, you know, um, post-COVID, we hope the collaborations, the unity still stands, you know, and that we also need to start rethinking and shaping um, different intervention strategies and not just doing things the old way. Thank you. Okay, fantastic. Mini. Yeah, okay. Um, I think this pandemic has affected everyone, and uh, but uh, uh, we need to heal and rise up as one. So what needs to change? No, we need to change mindset systems, requirements, and then we need to put in our minds that people on the ground has the best capacity to rise up only when they are supported and not stifled, no, and they're, they're, they're up, the capacity not stifled. Um, and then they are given opportunity and not just seen as beneficiary. Uh, in the Philippines, we have always been um, saying this, that no amount of humanitarian aid will alter the deplorable um, situation of the people for as long as the roots of people's vulnerability is not addressed. They will remain the most vulnerable to the impacts of disasters. So we need to concretize humanitarian and the development nexus. We have to address the roots of people's vulnerability. And uh, um, to our uh, uh, what we are talking about now, I think for those who are able and have the resources and capacity, make the most of what they have by ensuring that it reaches those who are in the margins, those who are neglected, and those who are left behind. And how to do that? Respond with them, work with them, 
journey with them, go where the local humanitarian action is. Thank you. Okay, fantastic. Larissa, you've got the final word. All right. Um, I guess I would say I get, the gauntlet that I would throw down is uh, more examples of local humanitarian action success and localization success. Um, and, you know, so, um, you know, to put forward those examples in communications, to document them, um, because I think if we can also see more examples of success, it allows us to imagine a different future. Okay, I mean, I don't know if someone in HPG has been briefing you without me knowing, but it's a perfect step nope. uh, because uh, HPG, this is not the kind of final stage in this research. We're actually moving forward and thinking through, you know, what opportunities and what results from COVID in terms of local action. And one of the things that we're doing, recognizing the lack of visibility and credit to local actors is trying to track um, online and uh, document uh, success, but also new innovations. Um, and so, so yeah, thank you for highlighting that, Larissa, but also um, please everyone look in your chat box because you will see a link to this new online tracker that HPG um, is, is launching. Um, and I want to close here. I'm not going to try and wrap up, but I do want to say a big thank you to the report's uh, co-authors, to Christina Bennett and, and Larissa Fast, but also to our fantastic panelists, to, to Gloria from the Titi Foundation in, in Juba in South Sudan, and Minnie from the National Council of Churches in the Philippines. A really rich um, and important discussion. Um, and thank you to the hundreds, I think, of people who've joined us online and through your phones. And in particular, I think, for some really great questions. Um, so now I'm drawing to a close. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And please do continue the conversation online through Twitter, but also through the tracker um, that we mentioned. So thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.